We want to take a second to thank you for supporting Womance by listening to our podcast. One great way that you can continue supporting us, including those listens, is hitting subscribe, telling a friend, leaving a review. That stuff all really matters. Sharing it on your personal social media is another great way to spread the word about Womance. And another option for supporting us, if we may be so bold, is to recommend going to our Patreon, where you can donate as little as a dollar a month to help us spread the word of woe. If you want to contribute more than a dollar a month, which obviously no pressure, whatever you've got, we are so appreciative to have, but we have awesome gifts for you. If you want a hand-addressed letter from Morgan and Isabeau, maybe with some special woe stickers, other merch, just uh, visit our Patreon. We are Womance on Patreon, or is it patreon.com forward slash Womance? We would be very proud to call you one of our patrons. I'm Morgan. And I'm Isabeau. And this is Womance. A podcast about romance novels. About boy moms. Clawing your way out of poverty. About gambling hills. About research. About pronouncing your L's as W's. About having that one friend that thinks they know best for you. But most of all, it's about that first thing. Romance novels. And... Ourselves. This week, we will be returning to the very moist well of Lisa Claypus with the inimitable, the infamous, infamous is good, dreaming of you. For those of you who follow the show regularly, you may have noticed that. We are working in tandem with Shelf Love, our good friends. Uh, I should say friend uh, because there are two of us in one of her uh, and her rotating slate of guests. Andrea Martucci over at Shelf Love. We here uh, at Womance have accidentally noticed sometimes that other podcasts <laughs> do books that we do. And we were talking to our good friend, Andrea Martucci at Shelf Love, about that coincidence and or uh, intellectual property theft and yeah. how it's a fine line, right? Yeah. How many, uh, but it's a, it's, a, it's a good one. And so we had an yes. honest whoopsie wherein we did Lord of Scoundrels the same week that Learning the Tropes did. Totally hadn't spoken about it, had no idea. Like, just two romance podcasts smelling the same breeze, and it was Lord of Scoundrels for whatever reason. And we were like, hey, Andrea, this thing happened. And she's like, that's so funny. (laughs) Do you want to do it for reals? I think, like, the other aspect of this is that you and I have been, like, sniffing around novels that we, like, did not do early in the show because it felt too obvious. And now it feels too obvious not to do. And I think Dreaming of You by Lisa Claypus definitely falls under that umbrella. It does. And interestingly enough, Andrea actually proposed this title to us. Mm Mm-hmm. And so we, first of all, have not heard her episode, uh, have not heard the Shelf Love episode yet. 
we are recording this totally fresh. We do have an indication of what an overarching theme of the episode was. She was allowed to express it to us in three words. And so we are going to strive to keep the content fresh and different. But one of the things we really loved about our whoopsie-daisy double episode (laughs) with Learning the Tropes is that, you know, and this comes up a lot whenever we cover novels that other podcasts have covered and realize it after the fact is just seeing like two totally different approaches to what is inherently generic because it is genre fiction and getting like two totally fresh perspectives and so we thought like what if we did that in like a really intentional way and then it's not a whoopsie it's just a daisy and uh in that way (laughs) you get to (laughs) you get to hear both takes both fresh yeah. takes, both fresh daisies in our feed this month. And isn't that a treat for all of us? It is, especially us. Especially us. <laughs> uh, yeah, so dreaming of you. Can I read the back of the book? I wish you would. All right, great. So my copy I picked up at a local thrift store, two bucks out the door. Uh, it was originally sold for six ninety nine US, mm. and I would like to read the. Can I read the blurbs on my copy? Please do. A real joy. Dot dot dot. Hard to put down. Spoken by no less of a lioness in her field than Kathleen E. Woodywis. Oh wow! Uh, what a blurb, Lisa. Get ready. Wonderfully refreshing, dot, dot, dot. I enjoyed it from beginning to end. Joanna Lindsay. My girl. Jolie. <laughs> and then this is a throwback. Lisa Claypas is more than just a fine writer of rich and passionate historical romances. She's a genuine phenomenon. Heart to heart. Which is a romance magazine that no longer exists. Oh, that's too bad. That is a... We should have magazines again. Are you ready? She stood at danger's threshold. Then love beckoned her in. In the shelter of her country cottage, Sarah Fielding puts pen to paper to create dreams. But curiosity has enticed the prim, well-bred gentlewoman out of her safe haven. And into Derek Craven's dangerous world. Dreaming of you! (laughs) A handsome, tough, and tenacious Cockney, capital C Cockney, he rose from poverty to become Lord of London's most exclusive gambling house, a struggle that has left Derek Craven fabulously wealthy, but hardened and suspicious. And now, duty demands he allow Sarah Fielding into his world with her impeccable manners and her infuriating innocence. But here, in a perilous shadow realm of ever-shifting fortunes, even a proper mouse, air quotes, can be transformed into a breathtaking enchantress. Mm. And a world-weary gambler can be shaken to his cynical core by Mm. the power of passion. And the promise of love. Oh, I like that. It's good. Side note. Mm. Romance uses Entrantress just enough because no one else uses it. And it is such a good word. 
Enchantress. Yeah, dude. I yeah. when you read it, I was like, mmm, mmm, mmm. Just felt it like I felt my shoulders. I'm like, mmm, yeah, enchant. Ugh. Ooh, I wish I would. I wish someone would call me an enchantress. Right? And it's just like we don't use it in the common vernacular enough. And I would say romance probably uses it too much, but it's just enough because we don't have it in any other space. Next time you're writing a professional, like, quarterly review of a fellow employee, describe them as an enchantress. I know exactly who I would write that about. A spreadsheet enchantress. Yes. A Salesforce Enchantress. <laughs> An ADP E-Time Enchantress. You put the E in E-Time for Enchantress. I know exactly who it's going to be. I'm, I, I can't wait to write my... I can't wait to get into work day and write their review. <laughs> oh, man. We should call people Enchantress. Got it. Someone, yep. If someone called me even enchanting, mm. it's so beautiful. It's just such a good word. Anyway, honestly, I think that back of the book is pretty good. I agree. I think it's really great. I think, okay, so Sarah Fielding, she is a celebrated novelist, although she doesn't go by Sarah professionally, so she can kind of sneak around the world without getting too recognized. Yep, she goes by S.R. Fielding. S.R. And her previous novel, Matilda. People love it. Barn burner. Total hit. And it was about a sex worker. And she Mm -hmm. did a lot of research talking to sex workers. Mm -hmm. And she now wants to write a story about a gambling hell. Mm -hmm. So she starts sneaking around bad parts of town. And she comes upon a man getting attacked, getting his face slashed and she shoots his assailant and murders them right out the gate shoots him in the throat and he gurgles to death and she goes oh dear and then she picks up the man who's just been beaten and he's like take me to my home and she's like i guess i killed a man and they're like don't worry about it and literally no one in this book worries about the murder (laughs) that took place on the first page listen when Derek craven says don't worry about it don't worry about it no one else will It is so funny to me. Yeah, she, I mean, and it's the first of the couple of murders that we're going to find in this book. Um, But people move on. Uh, This book moved on so swiftly. I don't think I've ever read another romance novel wherein our heroine murders someone and is like, chill as fuck about it. Like Sarah Fielding is let a alone cool, in the first 20 pages. Right? She's a cool customer if you know what I mean. She's not letting that bother her. She's like he was a bad man. I shot him in the throat and watched him die. <laughs> she's got other things going on. Yeah, she's got to write a book. The other thing, so she discovers that the man she saved is Derek Craven. She's like all I want is access to the gambling hell for research and he's like no. But then his factotum which another word we don't use enough and should be on more people's professional reviews shows up and is like, you know what? Yeah, you can sh- you can come to the gambling hell. I'll show you around. You wrote Matilda. I love that book. So does everyone here. Yeah. Also, <laughs> everyone loves Matilda, 
but no one can grasp the concept of a fictional character. And at first I thought this was because she was like talking down to like the chambermaids wink wink in the novel. But in fact, even the wealthy can't wrap their mind around the fact that Matilda isn't a real person. Mm -hmm. And so everyone's constantly like, what's Matilda really like? Yeah. Where is she now? I heard that she was in Scotland and it's like, it's actually quite a funny running gag. Um, And it also serves a key plot device. It does. It doesn't go nowhere. Mm-hmm. And as Sarah spends more time in the gambling hell, her and Derek Craven from a distance start to fall more and more in love. But unfortunately, she's got like a might as well be my fiance boyfriend back in her small country town. Perry. And so after a masquerade, wherein things happen, uh, romantic things, kissy things. More than kissy things. More than kissy things. Dry humpy things happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, She returns home and then she's like, she gets a visit from one of the girls who works at the gambling hell. And she shares that Derek Craven had paid her to spoon him, like so he could spoon her and call her Sarah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's a romance novel. Very romantic. Mm -hmm. Nothing like paying a stranger who vaguely looks like the object of your affections to turn away so you can spoon them and call, them, call by them their name. Mm. <laughs> mm. <laughs> we love that. Honestly, we do. <laughs> and then Derek's friend, Lily, gets them at a ball. And she ends up in a highly compromised position. And so to save her reputation, he marries her. And then there's this whole, ugh. Look, and then there's his former lover who refuses to let go. Joyce. It's so funny to me. In 1994, Joyce is a scintillating femme fatale. And in 2023, Joyce is the shift manager at the DMV. Absolutely. Joyce, uh, you know, causes a lot of trouble for them. She does. So what's interesting, you know, they get married like three quarters of the way through, but like mm-hmm. the true H-E-A, happily ever after, is him saying, I love you. Yeah, which happens at the very, very end. Where would you like to go from here? Because that's like broad overview of the text. I want to talk about our main characters. Derek. Derek. I had heard a lot of hype about this guy. He was no gentleman. He had grown up in the streets, born in the gutter, (laughs) nursed through infancy by a group of ragged prostitutes and educated in his youth by criminals of every kind. He was familiar with the schemes used to prey upon the unwary and few efficient moments it took to rob a man and crush his throat. Whoa. (laughs) So that's Derek. Craven. Also, he's Cockney. Yeah, so what we get is that he was left um, in a drain pipe. Yeah, literally. Yeah, that's that's he was left in a drain pipe uh, in the rookery, which is a bad part of London, and raised by these sex workers, these ragged prostitutes, as the text says. And, you know, tried to pull himself up. We learn later in this weird confession that the worst thing he thinks he's ever done is he uh, became a bone man. He, like, 
resurrection man. A, res- a resurrectionist, yeah. He was stealing graves. He was robbing graves to give to the medical schools in London, and he thinks this is the worst thing, and he, like, kind of throws it at Sarah to be like, you don't want to be with me. Get out of here. Yeah, exactly. It's like, you think that's the worst thing you've ever done? You kill people. <laughs> like, digging <laughs> yeah. up dead bodies not great, but, like, they already dead. Like... <laughs> This this book has, like, what I would consider very strange uh, morality. But we've already talked about the murder. But Morgan's referring to this idea. Derek Craven, before 2020, before Romancelandia blew itself up with, like, everything that happened with Courtney Milan and RWA and Damon Swade, one of the largest arguments was whether or not you thought Derek Craven was the bee's knees. Simpler times. Simpler times, We thought we could save the rainforest, and we were arguing about whether or not Derek Craven was the best hero there ever was. Or, like, a super shitty guy. I mean, he, like, that was part of the reason I was interested in this book, was because his reputation looms so large. It did. And it was one of the reasons I kind of refused to read it as well Mm -hmm. early on, because I was like, it's overhyped, it's oversold. And now, reading the book, I mean, resolutely, I feel like he's neither. I don't think he's a particularly uh, terrible person in the grand scheme of uh, romance novel heroes, especially from this era. But I also don't get the, like, I don't get the, uh, the, uh, the hype so much anymore. This is my weirdest part. As oh! Someone- <laughs> As someone who's read quite a bit of Lisa Claypas, like, I also came to the broader Romancelandia. I had been a romance fan in isolation, came to Romancelandia via this podcast. And, man, Derek Craven was super overhyped. I actually thought for a long time that the hype was about this uh, other gambling hell owner from a different... Yes, from a different Lisa Claypax novel, <laughs> Sebastian, who literally attempted to rape and kidnap his friend's fiance. And so I'm like, yeah, he's a bad guy. I can see why there would be like, you know, juicy gossip about this character. But like Derek Craven? Self plug. Uh, we talked about Sebastian St. Vincent's novel in our Lisa Clay Poster Syndrome series. Uh, where we talked about Devil in Winter. And Devil in Winter, that episode, if you go and seek it out, heads up, it was highly experimental time in Womance's history. So it's it's not ex- – I don't know. It's it's certainly one of our most controversial episodes. That's true. Also a very controversial book. Yeah, people really love Sebastian St. Vincent, who also – well, we talk about it in that episode – we talk about it in that episode. So I was like, at first, when I was like, there's a Lisa Claypass novel about a gambling hell owner. It's got to be this one because that guy is terrible and like also super hot. I can I can understand how there would be a kerfuffle. Yeah. So I labored under that misapprehension for quite some time until someone was like, no, it's Derek Craven of Dreaming of You. And I was like, oh, Okay, well, I haven't read that. And now that, like, I know that it's about this other person and not that, I'm like, I, there's no way that it could be worse or better than 
devil in winter. And like once you've you've done one rake in a gambling hell owner, you kind of like how many more do you need from the same author was my feeling. She's prolific. She's prolific. She's prolific. And this is, a, as you said, moist well for her. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't get it. I don't get the Derek Craven thing. I don't get it at all. Like, his backstory, very sad. We've heard sadder backstories. In fact, we've had longer, <laughs> sadder backstories recently. Recently, yeah. <laughs> with Lord of Scoundrels. Also, have you ever encountered, like, any Laura Kinsale books? Like, you want to talk about a sad, long-ass backstory. Laura Kinsale knows how to write them. We've also had, like, better guys with uh, that particular accent. The Proposal? The Proposal, By Judith Ivory. (laughs) By Judith Ivory. Like, there's, like, I mean, like, it's just, he, he looms so large. And I would say, yes. I would, there are some pretty hot little set pieces Yes. And I will also say, like, to me, this is kind of feels like the platonic ideal of a Lisa Claypost novel. It yeah. has that weird morality that you mentioned earlier, which feels like a hallmark of a Lisa Claypost. There is very strange set piece in the final sex scene, wherein he nurses his wife. I was like, wait, what are you talking about? And then it's I like, remembered yeah. as you sort of... <laughs> Lisa Claypost always manages to have a taxi cab confession style sex scene in each of her historical novels. So fucking true. <laughs> Dreaming of You is no exception. It also has, I think Lisa Claypost has this way of creating like a mousy heroine or a mousy air quotes heroine or like. I, I wrote down at one point that Sarah is violently square. Mm-hmm. But through her depiction, you can also understand her as this very, like, open-minded, warm, enigmatic person, charismatic person. She's got great riz. And, like, you really want to be around her. Lisa mm-hmm. Claypus does this great job of creating that kind of heroine who's captivating even in their innocence. I hate, like, I tend to immediately balk at back of books that talk about, like, her alluring innocence or something like that. But Lisa Claypas can genuinely write women like that, I think. I think, I mean, I totally agree. I think violently square is, like, the ideal way of describing this person because she literally murders someone in the first 20 pages and, like, we all walk away and she maintains her innocence. Levi yeah. might have murdered that chick. <laughs> They're like violently square. And like everyone at the gambling hell loves her. Everybody wants to protect her. And, you know, she don't know she's beautiful and that's fine. But I think what you're driving <laughs> at about why a character's innocence can be interesting, right, rather than one note is because it's not one note in a Lisa Cleopas novel. It's innocence, but it's right. innocence and charisma. It's innocence and curiosity. She's endlessly yes, curious yes, about people. Yeah. And one of the things that it really spoke to me, and I finally, it, like, something clicked into place about why her innocence is so interesting, where other innocences just feel, like, fucking disgusting and gross. Or and annoying ob- or flat. Objectifying, or- flat. Is because this book really gives us 
And Lisa Claypass, by this like characterization, gives us the fun of the discovery and the freedom of discovery, where it's like mm. Sarah talks to people and we talk to them with her and like we watch her watch people and like experience clothes and it's not just like she puts on the peach dress and then she puts on the blue velvet she puts on the peach chiffon with the six layers of roses and you know she's talking to the modiste and lily and it's like it's an it's a sensory experience like there's so much freedom to discover sensory delights other characters, other kinds of interests. Like she tries all sorts of kinds of weird foods. She like gets the backstory of the chef, but also the stable boys. Like she talks about the kinds of columns that he uses that like echo back into architecture. Like she's so curious because she's been so sheltered and she's so excited. Mm. And it's so fun to be with someone who's just like, Oh, and your brass knuckles do what again? That's fascinating. Or like, oh, the beast with two backs. I've never heard that. Can you explain it to me? <laughs> yeah. Well, I think there's also something about class happening here because she does not, this book does not focus, spend a lot of time with the wealthy. It does mm-hmm. not spend a lot of time in the wealthy's minds. Like the, Derek Craven is wealthy, but he's a, a self-made man or whatever. And Sarah is decidedly middle class and trying to, it is very much an outsider looking in on the wealthy who attend, visit this gambling hell and later who go to the ball and everything. And she herself is seen as an oddity to them, an object of fascination. And by virtue of someone like her being an object of fascination to someone like them, it really solidifies how boring they are. Mm -hmm. Um, Whereas like her objects of fascination are very much the working class. She wants to know their story. Having said that, this gets into like one of the clunkier parts of the novel, which is all of the freaking exposition is accomplished via dialogue (laughs) yeah it totally is it's like well i'm not telling i'm not showing i'm not telling not showing if they're talking to each other and she asked (laughs) she asked like that whole piece isabeau gave early on i think that's from the factotum explaining to sarah who Derek craven is Worthy, that's his name. Oh, about how he was raised? Yeah. That's dialogue. I don't even want to... Okay. There's something almost otherworldly about you, Worthy murmured, quite forgetting himself. It's been too long since I've seen such innocence in a woman's face. Innocent? Sarah shook her head and laughed. Oh, Mr. Worthy, I know all about vice and sin, but you've been untouched by it. Uh. It's just like... Always, always, always through dialogue, which is a little exhausting and like kind of goes to show like, you know, there's like a natural gift for storytelling here or like natural gift maybe for like certain characters. Here's the thing. Maybe there are natural gifts here, but there's like a certain lack of refinement in Mm -hmm. the execution, which I think is also very much Claypus. Yes. Unrestrained is is definitely a word that we can apply to this author. Unrestrained, that makes me think of, you know, Beast by Judith Ivory, which is just like scene after scene after scene after scene. Or like 
Kathleen Woodowice's Shanna feels unrestrained or <laughs> Mermaid's Kiss feels unrestrained. Yeah. This feels like something else because it is very like structured and it moves at such a quick pace. This is a mm-hmm. classic kind of romance that you can read in an afternoon. Mm-hmm. 400 pages you can clear in four hours, right? Easy. Easy read. Easy. But yet... It has this Claypus signature of, like, being slightly unhinged. And we've talked about it in the past, and it's, like, the shorter her books get, the more unhinged they are. I think what's interesting to me about this is, like, I I agree with you that, like, there are unhinged parts of this book, not the least of which is that it begins with a murder that no one ever mentions again. (laughs) (laughs) I cannot stress that enough. (laughs) This book is unhinged. One of the ways that it functions in its unhinge is that its unhinge is logical. And I think that like, that's really clear to me in Joyce, right? So Joyce functions as this antagonist, former lover. Derek Craven goes to her bed because he wants to feel something. He's got a lot of ennui after climbing the rungs of the social ladder in London's ton. And he says like, (laughs) ennui, who'd have ever thought? (laughs) yeah like right and like that's like a perfect example of like how fucking what this book is (laughs) um but joyce says this thing that i thought like here here is an author who understands and um (laughs) so derek says to joyce until you i'd never met a woman who had to threaten a man into her bed the barb found its mark he saw a flush color Collected the outline of her mask. Don't cross me again, Joyce, he said through his teeth, taking her wrist in a grip that made her wince, or I'll make you wish you were dead. I'd rather have your retaliation than your indifference. And I was like, the opposite of love isn't hate, it's indifference. Joyce cannot handle the idea that Derek is going to move on and literally wash his hands and never think of her again. Mm -hmm. She would rather murder him, burn down his club, scar his face, do all manner of unspeakable things just so that she is ever present and ever green in his mind, even as a hated object, because hatred is better than indifference. And I was like, here is an author who fucking gets it. Yeah, that's the thing. It's like she's able to land. She nails Sarah, pun unintended. Like the gravitational spin is there. Mm-hmm. It makes sense. Everything makes sense. Even all of this like insane stuff. The unhinge has logic, which is why right. it's not only palatable, but like also eminently forgivable. Like even as you're watching Worthy deliver like a monologue to himself that is literally exposition yeah (laughs) you know like you're like "Mm." okay strapped in here (laughs) i am here i am and like the thing is is like joyce is baroquely evil oh god she creates a plot to kidnap sarah keep her in a tower in an abandoned medieval castle starve her until she performs cunnilingus on her doesn't mm-hmm. happen in the book is just specifically <laughs> threatened. What a specific threat. And it is like, 
And then I'll come back and tell you about how well Derek's doing without you when he moves in. And then she burns down his gambling hell. But we also get this very clear and like not just because all of the exposition comes via dialogue. We realize that Derek and everyone around Joyce understands Joyce. They're like, she was 15. She was married off to this old bastard. And she's been just making do ever since. She comes by it honest. Yeah, she's a crazy psycho, but she was 15 when she was married to someone who could have been her grandfather. So like, and then there's this whole like aside about the fact that she like, she'd never let children grow in her like toxic and barren womb. And I'm like, (laughs) yeah, Yeah, why would she when you've just described her husband as her grandfather and like not a nice person? Like, I don't. Like the the that internal consistency where it's like someone could be like, oh man, Joyce was married to someone when she was fifteen. That's why she's this toxic, evil bitch. But that woman would have abortions. It's like what? <laughs> of course she would. You just said yeah. like make it make sense. What, she wants to bring children into this world. Like, like think about what fuck. her world is. Yeah, I, look what her world is. She's certainly a dynamic and interesting antagonist and she also has like a very rich backstory and you know is obviously thrilling when she shows up like she's a very good villain so we have this like wonderful protagonist we have a riveting antagonist and then there's Derek (laughs) and like I get that he has like this very Reaganomics (laughs) story about how he never took a hand. But he, okay, we'll talk about the politics of this book later. But, like, to go back to your weirdest part, like, him? This guy. Like, I find there are sexy parts in this book, certainly. Yes, and one that I want to, and a lot of them hinge on Derek doing sexy things. Mm-hmm. I think one of, as a fan of longing. Mm-hmm. I've got the card. I write, I coordinate the letter writing campaigns for the Longing Fan Club. Mm-hmm. We've got t shirts. Mm-hmm. Um, I love that he steals a set of her spectacles and keeps it in his pocket. That was my second sexist part. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Next to his heart, it's in his breast pocket. And like, she, she only discovers it when she like is about to hug him and she's like, What's this thing in your pocket? And, and he's he like, says, No, no. Don't. It's her glasses. She's like, "Why do you have these?" Oh, it's very good, right? Like he, he's demonstrative. I love that he goes into a drunken, self-destructive stupor when she leaves. I think we would all want anyone who we ever left to do the same to just give up on life. Yep. You know, so I, I get the like the moves, but like I can't record like I. He feels like just a series of, I don't know how to say this. That doesn't sound like, well, duh. Because I want to be like, he's just like a series of features. And I'm like, he's just a series of actions. But he's really just a series of anecdotes. Yes. Rather than a whole person. (laughs) Yes. Anecdotes is what it is. He's just a series of anecdotes. And like, comparatively, a whole person would be like the main character from 
the titular Lord of Scoundrels, whatever his name was, he was a very holistic character. Extremely. And the Prince of Midnight, totally whole. Like, not one question about what that guy is. In fact, a little bit of a question of, like, whose book is this? Yeah. And this might be the opposite of that. I know. Yeah. I feel like this is very much Sarah's book. Absolutely, this is Sarah's book. And, you know, when Joyce shows up, it's Joyce's book. Yeah, yeah. And then there's also, and like I said, and then there's Derek. In my mean moments, while I was thinking about this conversation and this book as I was reading it, I'm like, why do I hear Morgan's voice saying nothing burger? Because, like, the thing about the glasses and, like, but it's also, like, there's so many set pieces. Like, he owns a gambling hell. Okay, we've seen that a bunch of times. He pulled himself up from uh, mean streets of London. We've seen that a dozen times. Uh, he, you know, he he's bad at expressing himself. We've seen that a dozen times. It's There's nothing unique or fully stitched together, right? Like, the series of anecdotes, all adorable. None of them are actually seamed together yeah and I think that's part of the problem like so much of his backstory is given to us by others in massive dialogue dumps these moments where it's him like the stealing of the glasses is also like a weirdly abstracted internality like when he chooses to do it like she's walked away from her little purse and it's like it's it's not the cuddly third. It's like an omniscient third. He is deeply outside of his body when he does it. And so we are therefore really far away from yes. him. And like that mm-hmm. happens in the mm-hmm. book all the time. It's like we're never very close to Derek. And because we're not close to Derek, he's never close to us, which makes him that projector screen of like, am I into this? Because these set pieces are great. You know, is this like... I love you most ardently. Well, that's the thing. He like, I can picture other characters outside of the context of their book. And I think I could understand like what their motivations, I think I could predict their choices. I think I could, you know, I understand their motivations and their internality. And you're right. Derek Craven is so abstracted. And like when we do get his internality, it's something that's like not specific enough. It's like, Mm -hmm. I don't deserve you Mm -hmm. because I dug up corpses. (laughs) (laughs) And it's like, that isn't the part that's the problem. And then he's like, I was, I thought I was haunted by their ghosts. And it's like, oh, okay. Closer. All right. Well, um, hmm. it's not actually a whole person. Because it doesn't go anywhere, right? Because, like, if he were truly haunted by that, like, rather than just telling us that he is, there'd be a scene where, like, he wakes up in a cold sweat and has, like, sleep paralysis because he thinks he sees a ghost in the bedroom. And then Sarah is like, oh, hey, why are you awake? And then, like, they have a conversation. Like, there's a way of interpolating that trauma instead he just announces it to her after saving her from a potential (laughs) gang rape right exactly i was like what this is neither the time nor the place nor the thing that you're going to what you think this is what you're being condemned for guy like so sarah has been at this masquerade ball dry humping Derek craven she was pretending to be matilda her titular character and he realizes who she's really is who she really is and he goes oh 
guts. Get out of here. I was trying to get over you just now. Now I can't. What gives? And she encounters Ivo Jenner, who is the father of the heroine from Devil in Winter, interestingly enough. Mm-hmm. And he's also Derek Craven's rival gambling hell owner, who's done a similar thing. Mm-hmm. Except with boxing. Derek Craven has had sex with patronesses mm-hmm. who gave him, who invested in his gambling hell. But Ivo Jenner fought with his fists instead of his thrusts. Dicks. And <laughs> at first, Sarah's feeling alive. And so she's like, I'm going to go on this adventure with Ivo Jenner and I'm going to make him jealous. I'm going to make Derek jealous by going to Ivo Jenner's gambling hell. And then they got caught up in a riot. And then she finds, like, a well-to-do gentleman after escaping the carriage. And she's like, a well-to-do gentleman. Surely he'll take care of me. And instead he um, drags her off to gang rape her with his fellow classmates from Eaton. Yep. Tracks. And the, yeah. And then uh, she's rescued by Derek, who pulls her, like, I don't know, 300 feet away. And then is like, <laughs> I used to dig up dead bodies. <laughs> He rescued her on a horse, which also seemed like like he needed the horse to get through the mob, I guess. Like, but also just like it, it felt just like so many other books that we'd read, where it's like, of course, the rescues on horse, where it's like, by all means, it would have been easier, I think, to be on foot. But anyway, whatever. They didn't ask us. Not the only uh, attempted rape that he rescues her from either. No, it's just the first one, and he. Rescues her from this one. And, like, this is one of the interesting... Another interesting thing this book seems to be doing about class, which, if I think about the books we read from the 70s and the 80s, this book seems very confrontational of the wealthy and seems yes. to really want to mark them. the Not 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 just the wealthy, but the uh, inherited wealthy, the Nepo babies, mm-hmm. as dangerous people. With the exception of Derek's friend, Lily, her big blonde spouse. Alex. I love my big blonde spouse. It's my favorite line in the book. Picturing. It's a really good line. Uh, I was just picturing Alexander Skarsgård. And yeah, he is the only uh, member of the nobility that is treated with any kind of like good light in the book. Yeah, it's true. He's the only one who gets any kind of halo glow. Mm-hmm. And every time a a wealthy person shows up, including in the case of her country wealthy ex-boyfriend, they all turn out to be assholes. And they also, as the book continues on, are way more fascinated her, with her and Derek than they are with anyone else. And it's because her and Derek are genuinely the most interesting people in the ton. And they're not even in it. They are, genuinely. Which is weird because Derek isn't interesting, so. And I think it really speaks to, like, a shift in, you know, not just, like, our cultural understanding of the world, which is, like, I think it's, I think the 90s seem to be when bootstrapping really comes home to roost. Yeah. There's a thing here about money not being the problem. Like, the problem with money is the inherited class is listless and hasn't earned it right 
Derek is cool and handsome and makes good choices because he had to earn it. And because he had to work, there's like intrinsic value in his ability to gain capital in a way that other people that he associates with do not have because they didn't earn it and they are just like the landed elite and they fucking suck. Yeah, and like when does he make his first like big unforgivable mistake to everyone around him? It's when he has ennui and so he hooks up with Joyce. Yep. Ennui, the rich inherited man's disease. The root of all evil is ennui. And like it's in- it's interesting to read because uh we actually don't read it that often. Mm-mm. Or when we read it now, it gets like celebrated as like groundbreaking, e.g. Joanna Shoup, right? And in fact, like, I think this book is doing a lot of what Joanna Shoup's novels did. Mm-hmm. But did it in 1994. Yeah, lionizing labor and earn versus something like unearned but i think it's also doing that thing where people will be like this is a working class romance and it's because like one person is working class and the other one has is like has worked to be a millionaire yeah (laughs) but he's a good boss right like uh, those those house wenches are cared for and clean and get hot baths and they never have to have sex with him they just have to spoon him that one time (laughs) that one time And he paid her for her silence. So she was also compensated because he's a good man. TM, TM. Your weirdest part is it. Do you think your weirdest part would still be Derek Craven if there wasn't that hype around him? If there weren't all those like Tom Hardy fan cuts on Instagram? No, absolutely not. That would not be my weirdest part if there wasn't this insane level of both. But like, that's the thing. I don't understand it, right? Like there's this insane level of stan But then pre-2020, innocent times, there were also a bunch of people who were like, Derek Craven's the fucking worst. And I was like, he is literally neither of these things. Yeah. He's pretty milquetoast. Like, I don't understand the Derek Craven cavern here. Like, I, I don't understand this chasm. Like, I don't get either side, honestly. Like, I don't want to be like, I don't want to both sides it because like, I don't. I don't believe in both sides. I'm not a fence sitter. I'm not Jane. Oh, yeah, like... you're not. You're not. <laughs> really. No. I've grown a lot. <laughs> I've grown. Um, <laughs> but, like, I, I just, like, I don't, I don't, like, there's not a fence to sit for me here. You know what I mean? I, like, I just don't fucking get either side. I'm, I'm perplexed, which is why it's my weirdest part. What am I missing? I feel like this might mark the first weirdest part that is not, like, conditional to the text itself, Mm -hmm. except for the last weirdest part that I had. (laughs) But, like, (laughs) that has to do with the context around the novel's consumption. Mm -hmm. You'll be happy to know that my weirdest part is narrowly tailored within the text itself. Great. That's not true, actually. I'm already <laughs> developing. You want to backpedal already? We haven't even heard it. Okay. Well, my weirdest part is Perry. So Perry is Sarah's 
boyfriend, eventual fiance from Greenwood Corners, her hometown. Mm-hmm. And Perry's mother is classic, awful, cartoonish mother-in-law. She's obsessed with her son and resentful of anyone that his son, her son would be attracted to and feels like she's being replaced. Once again, yet another antagonist who's more fully fleshed out and understandable than Derek Craven. <laughs> but she's the wealthiest woman in town. Her husband has been dead a long time. It's just been her and Perry, her one child, her one son. But what's interesting to me about Perry's mother is that she kind of like reeks of like boy mom stuff that's going on currently. Which feels like a rebranding. It's like whenever grandmothers decided they didn't want to be called grandma anymore in like the year 2010, they were all like, I'm Gigi now. It seems like mothers. uh, Yeah. It seems like mothers of a Mab people uh, are now like, I'm a boy mom. And. It seems like it's trying to resist this archetype of Perry's mother, who is like, Perry is unendingly obsequious to, is like, you. we have to live with my mother and take care of her. I'm the only person she's got in the whole world. And it seems like we're just rebranding this archetype all the time. But it seems weird with like the boy mom revolution that people are like claiming it for themselves. Yeah, boy mom seems to be the positive mirror image of mama's boy. Yeah, except it's not. It's the same thing. It's the same thing. It's the mother of a mama's boy. Or not even. Like, I think you can be a mama's boy, not be a mama's boy and still have a boy mom. Absolutely, because she she deeply wants you to be a mama's boy. And, like, also, like, aren't, like, I just... Even even saying the term mama's boy, I know exactly who I'm evoking and I hate myself. I know it just sucks. And it's like, it's good for boys to love their mamas. It's in within reason. You know what I mean? Yeah. Within reason. As long as it doesn't get fucking weird. And like Perry's mom makes it fucking weird. And Perry makes yeah. it weird. Well, there's something about like, there's something about having, I was thinking about this the other day, how every day when I come home. My dog is so excited to see me. And like every day when my brother comes home, his son is so excited to see him. And then I was like, what if one day Vesper the dog ignored me when I came home and then stayed out past her curfew and slammed her door and told me she hated me and never asked to be born? (laughs) I was like, having a child is fucking nuts. Like, I would never, I would never recover. Are you kidding me? It's too much. I think about it all the time. This, like, bottomless pool of, like, unconditional love. And then you just hit the bottom after, like, 12 years all at once. Uh, It's crazy. But then like, also, you would want that to happen. Like if your child wasn't resistant to you, they would be strange, you know, like something would be wrong. And you would, your child would be Perry. Your child would be Perry. Like I said this to someone recently where it's like, so I I rescued a cat during the pandemic. Her name is Regina Spector. And 
if Regina Gina lives a full and long cat life, she'll live to be like 17 or 18. That would be a really long life for a cat. And yeah. at that point, the child that I birthed from my human body would be like, you know, 15 or 16. So I will have the whole of Gina's life... And my human child won't yet be an adult. And like that, like that will be the end of like Gina's whole life is the end of my child's childhood. Right. And yeah. like I've been thinking about this in terms of time where it's like <laughs> I will have I will have so much longer with my child as an adult than I have with my child as a child. Yeah. And so like constantly thinking about how do you set yourself up to have a normal nurturing relationship with a fellow adult who you will spend way more time with than you did wiping their butts. Yeah. And like Perry's mom, she's lost that thread entirely. Like she is just <laughs> swiping that baby's butt. <laughs> she's wiping his butt until he can wipe hers. Yeah, man. <laughs> like, Having that positive relationship with your adult child, which is weird to say, but that would be the context, is like hinges on your ability to have a super content, manage a super contentious relationship for like mm-hmm. 10 years. Mm-hmm. Oh, man. Oh, God, take a long view. The other part of like specifically the boy mom part of it is like as cishet women our like need our like need to suckle the morning dew that is patriarchy we will not only take it from a husband who ignores our regular requests for like small things you know dishes we we talked about that article with the like glass of water next to the yeah. sink right like not only will we will we tolerate that incredibly dehumanizing daily reminder but we will also like insist on the power of our sons and like their sexual power and like seek to control it (laughs) like it's so fucked up perry's mom sent me down a fucking i spiraled i can hear that but also (laughs) i it's it's weird because it's happening, right? Like this boy mom phenomenon, like the fact that there are t-shirts at Old Navy, mm-hmm. right? That feel like this very specific rebrand of like, you don't want to be the mama of a mama's boy. You're a boy mom. Like you're cool and like you're tennis and like, you know, you wear your baseball cap backwards because like, you know stuff about sports. It feels like an inheritor of like... um that one show, um, like three guys, a pizza place, and a girl, or whatever. Three guys, you know a girl, talking? and a pizza place. Yeah, that's the one. It feels like she grew into a boy mom, right? Because like she's so hip and she's so cool. She like doesn't have friends that are women because she's so cool. And it's like boy moms are friends with other boy moms because girl moms don't get it. It's yeah. Like, it's the pick me to boy mom pipeline. Yeah. Yeah. It made me Ooh. think about it. But also, like, once again, Lisa Claypus. Lisa Claypus. Absolutely nailing, like, a tangential character. 
character. Perry feels more whole than Derek Craven. Mm-hmm. Correct. Which is very strange. He's not more likable. Because I think someone's going to misunderstand what I'm saying here. He's not more likable. He's just more solid. What was your sexiest part? Well, we've already talked about the glasses, which was my number two. But my number one. Uh-huh. A.K.A. Sexiest. Sexiest. Uh, this is a very sexy book. And so, like, it, there were, like, quite a few in the running. But there's this lovely scene where they've been married for a while and they've just been having sex, which is great. Um, their sex scenes are get quite playful. Um, there's this scene where... They're in bed and she's like, I just want to talk to you. And so she like flips over under her stomach. She's like, you can't have sex with me if I'm on my stomach. And she's like grabbing the bed and he's like pulling her ankle and he's like, oh, you don't know about sex. And they're like literally playing with each other like they're wrestling. And in that wrestle, then they like like, you know, he takes her from behind, which is like also very sexy. And it's like all like sepia toned morning sex and like all of it was just like this is a jam also when's the last time I read such a playful sex scene like you know just like Mm -hmm. that she's like that they're wrestling right like he's got her by the ankle and she's like hanging on for the bed and like the bed like lifts off the frame and like it was adorable I was like this is so nice like yeah why don't we have more sex scenes with this kind of play in it um, which is why I found it deeply sexy, but also um, it just pushed itself over the edge. There's also a very good bathtub scene. Like, this is a very sexy book, honestly. Yeah. What was your sexiest part? Well, I feel like I, I, I would have said that scene. I found their final sex scene, which is in the epilogue after she's had a child. Mm-hmm. I And he... <laughs> And he suckles at her breast. Her, he suckles her milk out. And I was like, there's no way. And oh, nope. It's going to specifically say he got the, he got the salt, he got the salty juice. He got that salty juice in his mouth. Yeah. He, um, he's like, it's great. It's better than before. And I'm like, oh. Yeah. And I was like, why? Because you get refreshments halfway through? Because <laughs> cool. <laughs> Which like that's not how it went down in this, this grapes of wrath but okay i i want to talk about when he rejects her or like is rejecting her is casting her off it's at lily's house oh okay he's they've made out next to a banister mm-hmm. and he's going to leave her I'm just going to read it and then talk about it. Mm -hmm. Clinging to him desperately, Sarah kept her mouth at his ear. Listen to me. All she could do was play her last card. Her voice trembled with emotion. You can't change the truth. You can't act as though you're deaf and blind. You can't walk away from me forever. You can walk away from me forever, pardon. But the truth will still be there. And you can't make it go away. I love you. She felt an involuntary tremor run through him. I love you, she repeated. Don't lie to either of us by pretending you're leaving for my good. 
All you'll do is deny us both a chance at happiness. I'll long for you every day and night, but at least my conscience will be clear. I haven't held anything back from you out of fear or pride or stubbornness. She felt the incredible tautness of his muscles as if he were carved from marble. For once, have the strength not to walk away, she whispered. Stay with me. Let me love you. He walks away from her, by the way, at the end of this, but in a very pained way. He doesn't have the strength to stay. And what I found so sexy about this was her openness and her Mm -hmm. vulnerability. And throughout this kind of third act of the novel, she is always that way. She is Mm -hmm. always very courageous in expressing herself and being her authentic self. And she's just getting like tremors and (laughs) things like that in return. But Mm -hmm. she's being like, she's so assured in how she feels for him. And she's also, I think, assured in the way he feels for her, even if he doesn't explicitly say it the way she does. And I think it's so rare in romance novels where oftentimes seeing like the effusive exclamation of love is going from the hero to the heroine in these heteronormative romances that we read. And it was exhilarating and like affirming as someone who is the more effusive person and almost in most things that I do at the grocery store, I'm the most effusive person. It felt very like, validating i love that we got like an explicit understanding that like his reaction was positive even if he was resistant to it even if he didn't have that courage and i found it very sexy hearing about his reaction and her ability to like push through i was like that's passione yeah there's another scene kind of like that at the gambling hall where like she finds him like early in the morning and she's just like you know you're so handsome I love you so much and and like there's like a pause where it's like she's kind of waiting for him to say it and then like he doesn't and then she's like you don't have to and then he's just like I'm gonna fuck you on this poker table (laughs) and it's like she's so confident not even in his love, although she is, and, like, he loves her in, like, lots of non-verbal ways. But she's so confident in her feelings. I think you're exactly right to say that, like, that she she doesn't have any regrets. And it, like, doesn't cost her anything to say, hey, you look very handsome. I love you a lot. I'm really happy that I'm here and that I made this choice. And it is. It is refreshing. It's just, like, one of the other facets of, like, her character that are like fun to be with yeah it's easy to like feel her warmth and like Mm -hmm. her excitement and her Mm -hmm. like eh, propellant basically her own Mm -hmm. selfie and like oftentimes like I find that like when we're in the perspective of heroines they're so like self-conscious and like they Mm -hmm. project a sense of confidence but in reality they're very scared that the boy doesn't like them you know Mm -hmm. and so to kind of have that reversed was like refreshing but I also think on another level like it just felt so it felt so sexy to be that to be in a perspective that was that actually confident Mm -hmm. I mean there is a moment where she's like you don't want me that's why I left and he's like I'll show you what I want and then like 
from that period on, she never questions. She's like, all right. Yeah. It is. It's really good. It's really good. It's really good. Uh, Womance or nomance? That's a fucking whoa. It's it's a very good book. I think you at the top of the episode called it the platonic ideal of Elisa Claypass. I think like that's super true. Um, it hits every beat. It does all the things. Sarah is way more interesting than Derek Craven. The only thing that would give this an asterisk for me is like, I just don't understand the hype. It is like a perfectly serviceable romance novel, but like it is not upper echelon for me. Like, I think you, I think people should read it. It's a whoa. I enjoyed myself. I read it very quickly. Um, I think if you're a fan of Lisa Claypass and you haven't read this, you should read it and maybe return to it if you haven't read it in a while. But like, it is not better than like Lord of Scoundrels or Prince of Midnight. And like the thing about Derek Craven is like, the fuck? It's, you know, it's not better than Lord of Scoundrels or Prince of Midnight or Beast or The Proposal or, you know, I will say I think Sarah is probably the hottest ticket in this book. I think she is a character. I mean, does she nail the like mousiness as much as Flowers from the Storms, from the Storms main character? Maybe, maybe not. But she was a, she was a joy to be amongst, you know. Yeah. And I think the antagonist and like the politics of the book are really interesting. Derek Craven Maybe. is a leftist. He's trying to bring up. He's trying to make chimney sweeps illegal, but he like doesn't want to be credited with like charity. It's. It, it reminds me of that like idealized time of the nineties. Like it is very. <laughs> When we thought we could have capitalism work out, you know? Yeah, like the neoliberal promise of capitalism is. Yeah. We're going to get AmeriCorps and (laughs) you're going to get an electric car and and we're going to solve racism and we're going to we're going to get this recycling thing and we'll have Lilith Fair for the ladies (laughs) like that's a hundred percent what this book feels like. You know how we're gonna get it? Free markets. <laughs> <laughs> People are gonna earn it with their dollars. Yeah, we're all gonna bring each other up. We're gonna self-regulate. We just need mm-hmm. the wealthy to take. Yeah, it's just very yeah. So it's sentimental. Ugh. It's sentimental, and in that way, it's like it's an, it's a nice break from the culture wars. Although, yeah. like. There's some stuff about Joyce that is definitely a little like she doesn't make cookies. <laughs> That's very true. But like overall, I think like it's not as egregious as others. Like it's it's cultural politics are um, hopeful, as you say. Yeah. Miss Massachusetts does it again. Another woe. Another woe. Also, her author photo is. Or just in my copy. Oh, that's very, very, very good. I love the off the shoulder. Her collarbones. Wow. Lisa Claypass. Very coquettish. She, after graduating from Wellesley College with a political science degree, Lisa Claypass decided to make writing her full-time career. What a, what a trajectory. She's a former Miss Massachusetts and competed in the 1985 Miss America pageant. Be sure to mention it, y'all. 
I follow her on Instagram. She, for a while, I remember she was making tiny fairy furniture. I'm not pleased or disappointed with that information. <laughs> it's just kind of there. Anything else you want to say about dreaming of you? Someone who knows about the hype, explain it to me, please. Yeah. Could someone give me like a little bit of a, like. Make it make sense. I see the Instagram posts. I don't know which Derek Craven you read, but I hope he exists <laughs> somewhere else. In your mind, if nowhere else. Yeah. Yeah. At least you enjoy it. I'm glad you have that happiness. Mm-hmm. <coughs> With that, loosen your stays. But never your principles. Wooly guacamole, everyone. Thanks for listening to another episode of Womance. Womance is hosted, produced, and edited by my friend Morgan. And by my friend Isabel. Our logo artwork is by another friend, Mary Reichman. You can find her on Instagram at m.reichman, spelled R-E-I-S-C-H-M-A-N-N. Original music by Nick Gravelin. And our webmistress is Jane Bonzak. They're the best. You're also the best. We so appreciate your support by listening. Please consider taking this to the next level by following, rating, and reviewing. We read every single review. Or even check us out on Patreon. If you'd like more woe in your life, you can connect with us on Instagram at womance and on Twitter where we are at mans underscore woe. Or you can find more episodes and content at womancepodcast.com. If you have an idea or just want to reach out, please email womancemail at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Womance is a part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts to add to your romance collection at frolic.media backslash podcasts. Until next time.